It's lovely to see all of you here this evening. Today we're going to continue our series through the book of Hebrews. We're now in chapter 9, so it would be lovely if you could open your Bibles again to page 1197. Hebrews in chapter 9, page 1197. Other thing that might help you as we go through the sermon passage is in the very center of your bulletin, there's an outline that shows you where we're going. Now it's a long and quite a heavy passage, so I do beg of you your patience and your concentration as you walk through it together. We've opened our Bibles. Let's start with prayer. Almighty Father, we give you thanks because in your word you give us hope. You give us life. You point us to your Son in whom we have forgiveness. We pray now that as we consider that word together, you would be pleased to work by your Spirit to help us to both understand and respond rightly to what you have set forth for us. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Oh dear brothers and sisters, there are many doctrines in Scripture. They are all important, yet amongst them there are some which are perhaps more important than others. Doctrines such as the divinity of Christ, or the Trinity, or the doctrine we will see today, the doctrine of Christ's sacrifice offered once to bear the sins of many. This is the teaching that says when Jesus died, he did so as a sacrifice so great it can deal with sin entirely. And that it happened just once, never to be repeated. Now we've heard very much about our Lord Jesus Christ since we resumed our series in Hebrews. Two weeks ago from chapter 7, we heard of how Jesus is a greater and more powerful high priest more powerful than any before, able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Then last week in Hebrews 8, we saw that this greater priest also has a greater ministry. He serves a greater and more excellent covenant in which we have forgiveness of sins. And the doctrine we see today follows from both of those together. Because he is a greater priest and he has a greater ministry, he is able to offer up the one perfect sacrifice for sin forever. The way the text first helps us to see this is by comparing Jesus' new covenant ministry with the old covenant ministry in Moses. Both covenants have their own holy place, and regulations for worship in that holy place. Tell me about the Old Covenant. Well, the Old Covenant had a holy place called a tent, a tabernacle, later which becomes the temple. It's divided into two sections. There's the holy place, and separated from that by a curtain, the most holy place. And in that most holy place you have the mercy seat, the cherubim of glory. This is where God would appear for his people. That tent had been made by the Israelites according to God's design. 
And what are the regulations for worship there? Well, there was lots of things that happened in that outer holy place, but only one thing in the innermost holy place. It's what we heard about in our Old Testament reading. Just once a year, just the high priest was commanded to go into that most holy place, bringing blood for his own sins and for the unintentional sins of the people. It was called the Day of Atonement. It was the highlight of forgiveness in the Old Covenant. As verse 7 puts it, and into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. If you think about this, we learn certain things about that old covenant. First, if only one person can go in and once a year only, and then with great difficulty, then going into the most holy place is the exception and not the rule. As a rule, God's people could not go into the most holy place. Even after the atonement was made, they were still too sinful to stand in the presence of God and live. As verse 8 puts it, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing. Other thing we learn is when we hear that the high priest offers blood for the unintentional sins of the people, we know that he cannot offer blood for the intentional sins of the people. Leviticus in chapter 4 confirms this is the case. The day of atonement, the greatest day of Old Testament forgiveness, could only deal with outward things. Things like unknowingly eating unclean food or forgetting a ritual washing or something like that. As verse 9 says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. What have we seen? Old covenant, earthly tent, limited access, limited effectiveness against sin. That is, it could not provide the satisfaction for sin that we need. So now tell me about that new ministry, the ministry of the new covenant, and how is that better? Its holy place is also called here a tent, but it's not a tent made by man. It is a heavenly tent. It is a greater and a more perfect tent. And what are the regulations for worship in that tent? Well, just as the tent is greater, so are the regulations for worship. Instead of accepting a sinful high priest with the blood of an animal, in the true tent you need nothing less than a sinless and perfect high priest with the unblemished sacrifice of his own blood. And that is exactly what our Lord Jesus does for us. Verse 11. When Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing 
and eternal redemption. What does that imply? Well, it implies that the new covenant in Jesus is able to do what the old covenant set up through Moses never could. It shows us that that perfect priest offering the perfect sacrifice of himself in the heavenly tent can now deal with matters not just of washing, but he can sanctify the guilty conscience itself. He can make us truly clean from sin so we can serve our God and not die. Verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, Jesus' sacrifice means you can be forgiven all your sins, even your deliberate sins, even your premeditated and dark and hidden secret sins, they can be forgiven because the blood of Jesus is a sacrifice so perfect, it has that power. As the song puts it, what can take away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Verse 15, and therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first. It's a wonderful, wonderful confidence we have in Jesus, isn't it? Now, in the second part of our text, we continue to see this same big point. But now he shows it to us from another perspective, from the perspective of covenant. A covenant is like a, a binding promise, a guaranteed promise, in this case made by God himself. It's something that you can absolutely rely on no matter what. And the covenant we are talking about is the new covenant in Christ's blood. God's promise to us of forgiveness of sins to all who trust in him. And that covenant required a death to guarantee it to us. But why would a covenant require a death? Why is his death required at all? To show us this, we now see three examples of earthly covenants that all require a death, the shedding of blood. First illustration is a will. This is a kind of will that perhaps your great auntie Penelope writes when she wants to leave you her comedy sunglasses collection after she dies. Wills are a kind of covenant. In fact, the Greek word for will and for covenant is the same word. And what's being pointed out here is that that covenant is not executed until the death of Auntie Penelope. That's when you get the sunglasses collection. Verse 17, it says, A will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. The covenant requires a death. Second illustration comes from the start of the old covenant, the one that was mediated through Moses. 
Moses, perhaps you remember this, Moses at the start of the covenant, he took blood, the blood of animals. He sprinkled the book. He sprinkled the people. Blood was again required. As it says at the end of verse 19, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Again, you need blood for the covenants. And the third illustration comes from the way that that covenant operates, the sacrificial system. This too needed blood. The tent was purified with blood. The vessels were purified with blood. Almost everything was purified with blood. In fact, if you look carefully in your Old Testament, every single sacrifice to take away sins required the shedding of blood. As verse 21 rightly ends, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Again, blood is required. Three times we've seen in earthly covenants that whether it is to guarantee the inheritance, to secure the covenant, or to obtain forgiveness of sins, blood shed is required. And if blood is required in an earthly model, how much more is blood needed in the heavenly reality which it pictures? Only it's not animal blood anymore. Now it must be the blood of that perfect sinless sacrifice of Christ himself. As verse 23 puts it, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And the other difference is that it is not repeated. How many times, tell me, how many times can Jesus die? Just like us. It's given to him to die once. His sacrifice is offered just once for all time. As verse 25 says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And if you've been following with me, hopefully you've arrived where our text arrives, with that great doctrine in verse 27, that just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many will appear again a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Is a doctrine I said we'd see at the beginning, isn't it? That he was offered once only to bear the sins of many, and that it will not be repeated. But the next time he comes, it is to gather us to be with him. But what does this doctrine mean for us? I want to leave us with three applications. One a bit longer and two quite short. One, impossible. One possible 
and one necessary. First, impossible. What would be an impossible conclusion to draw from this passage? In the light of this passage, we know we cannot look for another sacrifice. Similarly, we know we cannot think that Christ's sacrifice can be offered again or represented or continued. It is 100% completed, fully offered once for all. Perhaps you come from another religion, and in your previous religion, there were sacrifices offered for sin regularly. But Christianity is not like that. In Christianity, there is no more altar made with hands. There is no more further sacrifice for sin. It was all done perfectly and forever by Jesus in the heavenly tent. But it may be that there are one or two of us who are feeling a little bit confused now. And I want to deal with that. Because I am saying that Christians do not have altars and sacrifices for sin anymore. But you may have heard some people calling our communion table an altar. And so what's going on? Where, where does that come from? Let me explain briefly. The idea that the communion table is an altar is not an Anglican teaching. It doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm sorry to say, it doesn't really fit with what we've seen here today. Now, Anglicans, based on the Bible, believe that in the Lord's Supper, we're remembering how Jesus already made that one perfect sacrifice for sins as we share a meal in remembrance around a table. Roman Catholics, based on their tradition, teach that in the Mass, they are actually offering a sacrifice of Jesus himself for the sins of the living and the dead at an altar. The teachings are actually totally different. And actually, it's very sad because the effect of their teaching is to take away the trust that we should have in the one true sacrifice of Christ once offered. It also makes believers think that they have to keep coming to Mass to be forgiven, and, and that's not true. But worst of all, it is replacing the one perfect, powerful, priestly sacrifice of Christ once offered with again a, a sinful human priest who offers things that are automated by hands, which actually cannot take away sin at all. And that's sad. It is for this reason why that Anglicans reject this teaching. I want to show you it just for a moment. Do you have your service book? Chorus's book, it doesn't have it, but the normal service book, maybe you can turn with me to, just for a moment to page 59. Page 59. And we're going to look at Article 31 of the 39 articles. It's XXXI of the one oblation. Have you found it? Okay. I'll just read it together. Of the one oblation of Christ, finished upon the cross. The offering of Christ once made is that perfect redemption, propitiation, and satisfaction for all the sins of the whole world, both original and actual, 
and there is none other satisfaction for sin but that alone. That's what we've seen today, isn't it? Carry on reading. Wherefore, the sacrifices of masses, in the which it was commonly said that the priest did offer Christ for the quick and the dead to have remission of pain or guilt, were blasphemous fables and dangerous deceits. This difference in teaching is one of the reasons why Anglicans, along with other Protestants, remain separated from Roman Catholics even today. And it's very sad to be divided, isn't it? In fact, we'd rather not be divided, especially as Roman Catholics can be some of the most lovely people you'll ever meet. I should know I married one. But actually, holding to what the Bible says about Jesus' finished sacrifice is so important that it is better to separate from them than to submit to a teaching with them that ends up undermining our confidence in what Jesus did on the cross. So, dear brothers and sisters, please don't get confused by what you might hear of their teaching. Keep trusting in the Bible. Keep trusting in the one sacrifice already made in the heavenly places and that that is sufficient for all your sins. For there is no further sacrifice and even if there was, you wouldn't need it because Jesus has done it all. Second application is the possible one. You possibly may be moved by this passage to want to tell others about Jesus' wonderful sacrifice. And I think that would be really good to do. Why? Because the fact that Jesus' sacrifice was offered once and for all also means that there is no other sacrifice for sin. Unless people come to Jesus, they will die in their sin. It is only by trusting in Jesus that anyone will be saved. And it is only by hearing about him that they will have the opportunity to do so. Let me encourage you to tell them about Jesus and what he did on the cross. And finally, our necessary application. In the light of this passage, it is necessary, in fact, it is absolutely essential that you do not doubt or waver or give up your faith in Christ, but keep trusting in him because his blood secures an eternal redemption, a covenant of forgiveness through his death. So whatever you do, no matter what happens, make sure you're always found trusting in him, holding fast to the fact he was offered once for all upon the cross, trusting that his blood is sufficient for every one of your sins, and looking forward to the day he will come again, not to deal with sin again, but to save us who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray. Mighty Father, we thank you for your great love by which you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. We thank you that in love he offered himself on the cross, the perfect sacrifice once and for all, that in him we would have forgiveness and the guaranteed covenant of eternal redemption. 
we pray that you would strengthen our faith in that cross, strengthen our hope in his blood. We pray also that you would grant us words and opportunity to tell others about him, that they too might join us in eagerly waiting that wonderful day when he returns and brings us to love and serve you forever. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.